Sometimes, when it comes to back pain, spinal fusion surgery is an option, which permanently connects two or more vertebrae in your spine, eliminating motion between them. So we're talking about this procedure and spine biomechanics with Dr. Ochechi Iwala, an orthopedic surgeon and spine surgery specialist at the Centers for Advanced Orthopedics, Orthopedic Associates of Central Maryland Division, in practice for over 50 years. Hello, I'm Caitlin White, and I've got a bone to fix with you. So doctor, if I've been recommended a fusion to treat my intractable back or neck and extremity pain, what will be my new limitation in terms of movement? That's a great question. It's also a common question for patients. Fusion of the spine to treat pain, not controlled medication, therapy, or injection does mean that there will be some loss of motion in the spine. But oftentimes, this loss of motion is not terribly life-altering. And I think it is helpful to attach some numbers to get a better sense of what the limitations in motion will be. So the most common fusions in the neck occur in a region we call the subaxial cervical spine. And there are five levels in the subaxial cervical spine, C3 to T1. And I like to tell patients to think of the 10-10-20 rule. So the first 10 represents the number of degrees at each level in the subaxial cervical spine contributes to motion in all planes. And that's flexion, extension, rotation, and lateral bending. And then the second 10 represents the percentage motion loss with flexion, extension, and rotation. And finally, the 20 represents the percentage motion loss with lateral bending or tilting of your head to the side. So noticeable changes in flexion, extension, or rotation would occur with fusions that are three levels or more. Noticeable changes in lateral bending, which is not as critical a movement in our daily lives, occur with fusions that are two levels or more. So that's the cervical spine. With the thoracic spine, there are 12 levels in the thoracic spine. So there's not much motion loss with the fusion of a single segment. Each level in the thoracic spine only contributes approximately six degrees of flexion, extension, rotation, and lateral bending. With that said, trunk rotation, turning your torso, is primarily driven by the thoracic spine. So if you have your entire thoracic spine fused, as is the case with scoliosis or deformity, then you would notice limitations in the ability to twist your body. But otherwise, having a few levels fused in the thoracic spine really doesn't alter motion or functioning significantly. And then finally, the low back or lumbar spine is another region that's mobile, like the cervical spine, but mostly only in the flexion and extension plane. And each level contributes about 15 degrees or 20% to flexion extension in your lower back. So if you are able to touch the floor with your hands by bending your lower back, then with a one-level lumbar fusion, your hands might instead reach your feet. And then with a two-level fusion, they'll stop probably around your ankles. So that kind of summarizes the change in, in movement and change in motion with uh, fusion in the spine. So it sounds like, yeah, there are some limitations, but with a spine fusion, does that mean you can't bend and twist at all or just it's less drastic? Yes. Short answer is that it's, it's less drastic. You will be able to bend and twist after your fusion operation. And for the vast majority of fusions, those less than three levels, the change in motion won't be significantly life-altering. That said, in terms of bending, lifting, and twisting immediately after surgery, a lot of patients have questions about that because they want to make sure that they're not doing things that they shouldn't do immediately after the operation that might harm their recovery. And so I do tell patients to think of the number 10 again 
And this 10 in, in, in this instance represents the maximum number of pounds that they can bend, lift, and twist with immediately after their fusion surgery. So you can bend, lift, and twist all you want, and you can walk all you want, but just don't do that while you're trying to carry an object that's 10 pounds or more. Another common question just related to kind of activity and motion after fusion surgery is whether it's safe to have sex. And uh, yes, it is. Again, the only limitation that I really recommend patients to watch out for is lifting heavy weights. So if you have a lumbar spine fusion, don't lift 50 pounds. But if you want to be active, walking, that's encouraged and sex is important. So just for all the patients out there who've always been curious about that, but maybe too embarrassed to ask, that is okay to do. And then other than that lack of motion, what are some other long-term consequences from fusion? Great question. So while the vast majority of fusions result in lots of motion, which we've covered, and that doesn't significantly alter your day-to-day activity, patients should be aware that the altered mechanics in the spine does mean that the unfused levels have to work a bit harder to compensate for the lack of motion at the fused levels. So I uh, use the analogy it's that it's like when a coworker takes time off of work. So the unfused segments in the spine have to handle an increased stress load when it comes to motion, just as someone at the job would have to handle an increased workload when a coworker calls out sick. So this increased level of stress can lead to the unfused levels, quote unquote, burning out and becoming symptomatic. And that is causing uh, more back or extremity pain due to irritation of the nerves that are around, you know, the disc. And so we call this process adjacent segment disease, or ASD for short. And the rate of ASD is about 2 to 3% per year in the lumbar or cervical spine. So in a five-year period, one would expect that there is a 10% chance that the levels above or below a fusion become problematic and pain-generating. I will say that just because an adjacent level starts to break down doesn't mean that that patient should expect they're going to have surgery again. Oftentimes, patients improve with medications and physical therapy for those symptomatic levels. But there are the subset of patients who continue to have pain to adjacent segment disease and do not respond to conservative therapy. And in that case, revision surgery to fuse the adjacent level often helps to reduce the severity of the symptoms that they're experiencing. So is fusion the only answer, or are there motion-preserving techniques in spine surgery that we can use? Yes, there absolutely are newer motion-preserving techniques. A lot of these techniques were kind of formulated and thought about to address that 2% chance per year of adjacent level breakdown. These latest spine technologies focus on motion preservation to reduce that risk. Simply put, this is a concept of replacing the problematic disc rather than removing it and fusing the spine. And so in spine surgery now, there are both cervical and lumbar disc replacements. The former, though new, has a longer track record in spine surgery and the outcomes are favorable. But that said, cervical disc replacements aren't for everybody. Traditionally, cervical disc replacements are reserved for those patients who have a quote-unquote soft disc herniation or, or pinching of the nerves that is not the result of a bony arthritis. And also with the cervical disc replacement, there should be no other signs of arthritic disease. For example, if a patient has evidence of cartilage breakdown in their facet joints in the back of the neck, then they won't be a candidate for a cervical disc replacement. Or if the degree of degeneration in the cervical spine is so significant that the disc is completely collapsed, then at that point, cervical disc replacement probably uh, wouldn't work too well either. 
And then finally, if the cervical spine happens to be really unstable, that is a large movement between the bones when you flex and extend your spine, then that's an indication to fuse instead of replacing. But in the absence of kind of these degenerative arthritic changes elsewhere in the cervical spine and just a you know, focal disc herniation, cervical disc replacement is a great choice. Also a great choice for younger patients who have many years ahead of them and don't want to take that risk that over, you know, a few decades, that adjacent segment will break down and, and be a problem. And so when you think about disc replacement in the lumbar spine, a lot of the same indications exist. So you don't want to have arthritis in the facet joints in the back of the lumbar spine and you kind of want to have a focal disc herniation. The issue becomes the lumbar spine works really hard, and it's very rare to find a lumbar spine that only has a disc problem and doesn't have any other arthritic problems. So lumbar disc replacements are performed less frequently than cervical disc replacements, but you know, in the right patient, they still do a great job. So I will conclude with just saying that replacement technology is fast growing. It's an innovative area of spine surgery. And I do think at this point, every patient should at least ask their spine surgeon for their opinion on whether or not a replacement or emotion preserving surgery is an option for their particular condition. And I, I do expect that in a few years, the rate of replacement surgery in spine will definitely increase. Well, we thank you so much for joining us today. That was Dr. Ochechi Iwala, an orthopedic surgeon and spine surgery specialist at the Centers for Advanced Orthopedics, Orthopedic Associates of Central Maryland Division. Find out more about us online at mdbonedocs.com. And please remember to share and subscribe to this podcast. That's all for today. I'm Caitlin White, and that was a bone that's fixed.